You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. Hey, Live Different Podcast listeners, are you looking to get out of your comfort zone? Put the things that we talk about on the Live Different Podcast into practice. If so, come and check out Under 30 Experiences and Travel the World. Under 30 Experiences is open to ages 21 to 35. Come down and visit me in the jungle of Costa Rica. Go and explore Mayan ruins in Mexico and Belize. Hike the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. Go to street parties in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Come to see the historical colonial city of Cartagena, Colombia. Drink wine in France. Go down to Barcelona. Uh, Why not check out Ireland and Scotland and London Glacier Walk in Iceland. We go all over the place. Bali, Indonesia. I can't remember where else we go, but there are amazing places for you to check out, and I suggest that you do. I'm the co-founder of Under 30 Experiences, and if you put in the code Live Different upon checkout, you'll get $100 off. So go to under30experiences.com, get out of your comfort zone, travel to a faraway land, and meet new people. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Live Different Podcast. My name is Matt Wilson, and today we are here with Laura Shin. I connected with Laura after reading an outstanding article in Forbes uh, where she is a contributor. She is a freelance contributor, and she also helps people uh, create and find the freelance gigs that they want through her helpful tips on ideaswordsempires.com. She's an avid traveler and she is also uh, the author of The Millennial Game Plan, Careers and Money Secrets to Succeed in Today's World. Laura, I'm looking forward to having a very interesting conversation. I know there are a lot of people out there who are trying to travel. They're trying to pick up freelance gigs. They're trying to get their finances in line so that they can do the things they want to do in our short lifetime. So, Laura, welcome. Thanks for having me. You are uh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. So, Laura, I just wanted to, to open up and hear a little bit about your story. I know that people do not just get signed by Forbes to become a uh, contributor and to get paid to do it. I know that's a lot of people listening. That's probably their dream job. Uh, So can you tell me a little bit more about your story? Sure. Well, I've been a journalist for almost 20 years, and um, I started my career working at the websites of uh, Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times. And this was back in the days when um, being at the website of, you know, publications like these was slightly looked down upon. <laughs> it was before, um, media really understood that the web is where the future was going. Um, and it's really interesting to see just how long it's taken for a lot of these companies to have a digital first strategy. But what was great about doing that is that I learned Um, a lot because despite the fact that these were established institutions, the web outfits were usually smaller, um, scrappier, you know, not as, um, there weren't as many layers of management or, um, and, and, and it allowed, you know, anyone really to just pick up 
a whole number of skills or tasks or responsibilities based on what was needed. Um, and I tried freelancing after that when I was in my 20s. Um, but I really honestly was just not good enough either at journalism or at managing my own finances for, for, um, my freelance career to be very successful. Um, I found that, you know, I could maybe sell a few stories here and there, but I wasn't always getting editors to want to hire me multiple times after that, or make me one of their regular writers. Um, and then on top of that, because I wasn't good at managing my own money, you know, having a, an irregular income just caused me to go into debt. Um, I, you know, did not have a budget, was just, was just really in the dark about how all of that worked. And, um, and so I eventually did go back to full-time work. And then I also, uh, during that period in my twenties, um, I'd been writing a lot of feature stuff like arts, travel, um, food, you know, yoga type things. And, and I later decided I wanted to write about more serious issues. And I felt that one of the biggest topics that would need good journalism in the future was climate change, because it seemed like something that would be in the news for decades. You know, it was, um, it would, you know, provide me that intellectual stimulation that I felt that I wanted from my work. Um, and so I went to Columbia journalism school to, um, take a mid-career program that was actually uh, one of the newer programs that they offered. The, the journalism school has the main program that's been around for, um, I think it's something like a hundred years. I actually don't know how many, uh, but I believe they had their centennial a few years ago. And, um, when I went to this mid-career program, I think it was the third year they had started it, but that was a topic focused curriculum. Um, Whereas the main program is based around like broadcast, print, um, you know, uh, digital. The mid-career one is based around science, politics, business, arts. And so um, I ended up doing the science track uh, to, you know, like I said, cover environmental issues. And then I graduated in 2008. Um, and because it was the time of the financial crisis, uh, within like the year um, or two after I graduated, a whole bunch of media outlets literally just <laughs> cut their entire environmental reporting staff. There, some even cut their whole science writing staff. <laughs> so it just was not a good time to get back into journalism. I ended up doing grant writing, which I really did not enjoy. Um, and then I had a kind of personal um, uh, what's the word? Um, epiphany slash transfer transformation, I guess is what you would call it, where I finally learned all the lessons that I really should have learned in my twenties about my finances. Um, and what happened was that I, despite the fact that I had a pretty decent job, I was finding again that I was falling into credit card debt. It was extremely frustrating to me. And so I took a workshop learned how to budget and then within five months paid off all my credit card debt. And then it was just on this tear of paying down debt. And so paid off my student loan super fast, um, within. So after I paid off my credit card debt, I think it took me another 11 months to pay off my student loans. And so, um, ultimately in, in my student loan was about 20,000 altogether. Um, although because I'd been making payments for the previous few years, I think it was 
I'm pretty sure it was lower than that, you know, by the time I really got started in earnest. Um, but then once I paid off all my debt, then I realized like, oh, you know, I can, uh, take all this money that I've been using to pay down my debt and save it and start to freelance again. So I did that and then quit my full-time job in, uh, about almost a little, uh, almost four years ago now. And, um, yeah, the freelancing has been going great because I do know how to manage my money. That's really helpful uh, and actually essential if you are going to freelance. Um, and also because, uh, you know, I'm better at the journalism. And so um, what happened with Forbes is that I had a contact there and I knew that they hired contributors. They have this network of regular contributors. And the network consists of two types of contributors. Uh, one type is a journalist like me that get paid for our work. And then the other type is more thought leader, uh, type contributors who, for instance, are like CEOs or other executives who, um, are, you know, kind of deeply embedded in their industries, have a lot of insight and, um, you know, can publish their thoughts, uh, on the Forbes network. And so, um, I started writing for them shortly after I, quit my full-time job and, um, the editors began noticing my work. Um, and so they offered me all kinds of other opportunities. And so over the years I've done things for them, like, um, you know, small things as small as like, uh, being featured in videos and then things as big as, you know, doing the ebook or, um, in more recent years, they launched a list, you know, Forbes does multiple lists throughout the year, like, but the most famous is the billionaires list. Um, but the one that they launched, uh, that they had me and another reporter in charge of is, um, what they call the Forbes FinTech 50 list and FinTech stands for financial technology. It's uh, companies that, um, you know, are not necessarily, uh, you know, the traditional banks that you would think of, but are, uh, typically startups that are using technology to offer financial services in a new way. So, um, you know, kind of the oldest version of this that, that people might think of is something like PayPal. Um, and then newer versions are uh, companies like Betterment or um, Robinhood or Motif Investing or, um, you know, things like uh, Funding Circle or um, Lending Club, kind of these like peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, lending platforms. And then the area that I've begun to cover a lot more recently is uh, what's called blockchain technology, which is the type of technology that powers cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and others. And so I've been writing a lot about that. And then, um, you know, to go back to what I was mentioning about how I've grown my relationship with Forbes to include things beyond just writing the stories there, I launched a podcast with them last year that covers these topics, blockchain, cryptocurrency. Um, it's called Unchained. Uh, you can get it on, you know, iTunes, um, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, it's it's on a whole bunch of different platforms. And so I, that comes out every other week, and I've been doing that. And uh, Forbes actually did not continue a number of the podcasts that it launched last year, um, and mine was one that um, you know, was not going to be continued, but I found a sponsor for it. And so I've been continuing it on my own. 
Um, so that's kind of the, <laughs> the big long story of, um, you know, how I got started and what I've been up to the, the last few years. No, that, that's great, Laura. And that gives us a, uh, a lot of depth in, in understanding that it is a long, it's a long road to be financially free, to be able to pick up gigs like Forbes, to be able to uh, find a sponsor for your podcast. It, I mean, it, it sounds like you have a, your hands in a lot of different things, but it takes tremendous, uh, as you told me, I think offline, was that it t- takes tremendous focus on your your journalism, on your on your freelance writing to be able to, as as you just alluded to, create the skills that it that it. Um, that it takes to be able to uh, to stand behind, you know, getting that getting that check, uh, however however often it comes, to be able to support yourself and travel and do yoga and the other things that you mentioned. So, I love that. And one thing that I wanted to really point out to people is, okay, you ended up going to Columbia and um, doing a, a postgraduate program, but people listening who were thinking, oh my God, well, I can't get into Columbia, or oh my God, I can't possibly go into any more debt. Don't worry, there is hope. Uh, I'm happy to say that in that very same year that you graduated um, from that Columbia program, I graduated from undergrad, and as you mentioned, it was the financial crisis, and it was just a crazy time to be going into business. A lot of my friends were going into finance, getting their job offers uh, taken away, and they had to give back their signing bonuses and all this stuff. And uh, Jared O'Toole and I, uh, my co-founder, started this website called Under 30 CEO, and we started talking about, on our very own, what what was going on out there and we were by no means journalists but we were bloggers and we were able to grow an audience of a half a million people per month and really get some some credibility uh, to the point where then we did pick up sponsors and where we then did use those tools to be able to talk about things like, okay, how you start a business and uh, figure out, as we were figuring out the social media marketing techniques that were all coming out through 2008, 2009, 2010, the birth of Twitter and Facebook was hot, just opening up to the rest of the world and not just college students, all these things were happening. So it was an amazing time, a very difficult time to go into the, the digital age. Uh, of, of writing and publishing content online, but one that <laughs> not many people survived. We walked into, a couple years later, we walked into Inc. Magazine's offices, uh, Monsuino Ventures, and this huge downtown office building in New York, and they said, well, our, our monthly uniques are only at like, I don't know what they were, something small, like three million users, three million a month. And they're like, you guys just started this out of million, out of nowhere and, and are getting half a million readers a year. How did you do it? And you know, they, they looked at us and they said, we're scared. These places are popping up all the time and they were trying to get their digital strategy down. So Laura, I know that you know a lot about digital strategy. Uh, and especially what you talk about on ideas, words, and empires. And this doesn't have to be like social media tips right now, but 
I would like to pull some actionable stuff for people if they're out there and they're listening, you know, man, how do I pick up that freelance gig? What advice would you have for them? Um, so the number one thing that I think um, will make a freelancer successful is to be really good at what you do. And I know um, that isn't exactly in line with what people are thinking when they're looking for a freelance tip. But um, I would say one of the things that has made it much easier for me to succeed this time around is that people, by and large, come to me to work, to, to do work for them. And so that means that I do not have to spend very much time looking for work. Um, when I was in my twenties and I was doing this, you know, uh, that first go round, I would often have to pitch all different kinds of publications and that just results in many hours of essentially unpaid work. You know, I might spend a long time researching a story, but then not actually ever sell it anywhere. Even if I contact, you know, three to five different publications, um, but this time around, you know, obviously having the regular gig also helps. Um, and I actually started with two regular gigs. Um, eventually the other regular gig went away uh, because that site closed. But, you know, if you're looking to start uh, freelancing, I would definitely suggest looking for at least one regular gig. Because then that means that every when you enter every month, you know that you are going to either earn a certain amount of money or have a certain amount of your hours accounted for, you know, that you're going to get a certain amount of work. And then that reduces the amount of time you need to put in to trying to sell yourself to get more work. And like I mentioned, um, sometimes those hours eventually go unpaid if you don't actually ever sell, uh, you know, that project. So, um, because, uh, you know, I have built up a body of clips on other sites. I've had a lot of different editors come to me saying, Hey, I've seen your work. Uh, you know, I'd be interested in hiring you. Or I've had, um, colleagues, uh, recommend me for gigs. And so people reach out to me saying, Oh, you know, I was looking for someone to write this type of thing. And, you know, so-and-so recommended you, um, and so those, just the fact that like I have opportunities coming my way a lot, um, means, you know, as I mentioned, I don't have to spend a lot of time pitching. Um, and not only that, but then as I also mentioned early on when I described the first time I went, uh, I tried freelancing, the fact that I'm much better at what I do means that once I do work with somebody, then they often will want to hire me again. And so, um, you know, that again, just means I'm building relationships. Um, you know, I'm building kind of somewhat regular streams of income, even if it's a place where they might only hire me to do like three articles a year. Um, you know, maybe, uh, they're not a place that covers like financial stuff, but every once in a while there's something that's, uh, somewhat in that vein, you know, I'm going to be, I may be the person that they think of. Um, and then the, the second piece of advice that I would have is that um, in order to get to that place where people think of you for certain gigs, it's extremely helpful to have um, an area of specialty. 
So in my case, I, I have a few different ones. Uh, personal finance and career uh, slash productivity are kind of the ones that I started with. And then through my work at Forbes, I've added, you know, covering fintech and uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency. And so when people need work um, on any of those topics, they think of me for them. Whereas if I were just a generalist, they wouldn't necessarily think of me first um, when they had opportunities like that. And so, you know, that, cause I feel like that was another issue that I had in my twenties was that I was never top of any editor's mind for any specific gig because I was a generalist and every single time I wrote something, I had to learn about it anew, which also then therefore added to the amount of time it took me to do anything. Um, and then because I wasn't a specialist, I probably wouldn't be doing as good of a job as somebody who, you know, really was already steeped in that field might do. So, um, so yeah, the, the two things that I would say are to, you know, really understand your craft and to, um, to try to be as good as you can in it, which requires you to kind of study how to get better, to push yourself to, um, you know, slightly out of your comfort zone. Like if you get really good at doing certain things with your work, um, you can kind of, uh, I guess, sort of rest on your laurels and just keep doing that. But if you want to get better and get even better gigs, you have to find opportunities that are slightly more challenging in order to get to the next level. And then, uh, you know, as I mentioned, choosing an, an area or two or three or, you know, however many to specialize in will make it so that people think of you when they have those opportunities and it, it gives you a leg up in that respect. Okay, excellent, Laura. And, and I think, again, to just stress, you gotta get good at the craft. I wanted to ask you, do you have tips for people who want to become better writers? Oh, wow. Um, so with writing, um, I'm going to, I'm going to actually, uh, put this together. I, I'm going to, um, you know, narrow it down to, to journalism, uh, because there's so many different types of writing. Um, and as I discovered when I did grant writing, what makes good journalistic writing is not what makes good grant writing and what makes good grant writing is not what makes good journalistic writing. I can um, imagine. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because they're like, even the other day, um, I wrote something that I realized looking back was a, a, a technique or, so, or just a tip that I had picked up in grant writing. And my editor was like, we would never, you know, express something that way and da, 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 da. And I was like, oh, you know what? She's right. Because this is something that I learned from grant writing which initially when I started doing the grant writing, like every fiber of my being resisted the way that they wanted me to write because it was the exact opposite of what I'd learned in journalism. And it was essentially what I labeled bad writing. <laughs> so, um, sure. but anyway, okay. So tips for journalistic writing. Um, so obviously uh, the number one most basic thing that you need to get down is getting your facts straight, um, which means always double check, triple check, uh, you know, don't assume that you know something. Um, don't assume that what's told to you by somebody is necessarily true. Um, it's interesting because these t 
types of strategies are in the news a lot now because of the, the rise in fake news and uh, propaganda and all kinds of you know other things going on politically. Um, but it is true that uh, I have been doing this for decades now where, you know, uh, let's say I'm interviewing somebody and they rattle off some statistic. I often just interrupt and I'm like, oh, where did you get that? You know, can you send me a link? And then I'll look. And if it's like, um, even if, let's say, even if they send me a link to uh, a New York Times story that has that stat, I have to go to the original source. And so I have to find out where did the New York Times get that statistic? Um, you know, is it like a government database? And so then maybe I go to that agency, um, you know, that agency website, um, you know, try to get the data directly. Uh, so that's one. Um, the other thing I would say is, um, so getting your facts straight, I honestly would say that um, both uh, being like uh, carefully vetting your sources and developing relationships with them is really important. Um, before I go to write any article, I really always try to look for the best source for you know the topic that I'm writing on. Um, I, I've had people compliment me on a particular story, and I always feel like my response is, "I'm only as good as my sources," because. You know, I can't, as a journalist, I am not, I, you know, I, I, it depends on the topic, but like generally for most stories, um, I'm not giving my opinion or my analysis, you know, um, I can't, like, it, it really depends on the story, but, but usually what I, you know, most prefer to do and is, is best to do is to have a source who works in the industry and, you know, is much more knowledgeable about it than I am give me their take on what it all means. And so, um, you know, finding a good person to do that is extremely important. And if you, you know, find someone to interview, but they're not as, um, you know, maybe they don't have as an extensive background in the industry and they don't, or, or maybe they just don't have a good analytical mind, then I'm not going to get that good quote. I'm not going to get that good perspective. And I'm going to, I, you know, I might be able to provide it on, on my own. Um, but if, but if the topic is new to me, I might not see it. So, um, you know, getting the facts straight, but then also it's not just because every story is not just like, this is what the facts are about. The story is also about like, what does it really mean? Like, like what is quote unquote, true and accurate in the big picture perspective, not just in the small, like detail perspective. Do you know what I'm saying? And sure. so that's why finding that source, it, you know, finding the one who can take that step back and say, this is what it means. And for me to know, like, you know, they're, they have a good perspective and they're accurate. Um, that's really important. Um, and then of course, actually beyond that, actually getting multiple of those sources because, you know, people always have a range of views on any issue. So, um, so those two things. And then in terms of, so those are kind of like reporting tips, uh, in journalism. And then, um, for the writing, um, I think for me, uh, structure is, is a huge, um, thing with the writing where, you know, you need, to figure out what is the best way to tell the story, um, which, you know, begins with like, what is going to really grab the reader, but then also 
the structure is really important for making sure that you really carry the reader through and help them understand this issue. And uh, you need clarity, uh, which doesn't just come on the sentence level, but, you know, on that uh, kind of overview level. And so structure is what's really going to help um, help you, you know, uh, convey what you need to convey to the reader. And then um, also in terms of the writing, I would say that um, getting your draft down, you know, obviously needs to be done, but your work doesn't stop there. You need to go over what you've written multiple times um, in order to make everything as concise as possible, as precise as possible, um, and to make sure it has good flow and is entertaining throughout. Um, you know, you don't want to just have long blocks of text that aren't broken up by quotes because, you know, writing has like a texture to it or a rhythm. And so, you know, it's a little bit like music, like, uh, you know, if, if you have too many quotes, then that, then it, uh, that also isn't good. Um, but you want to like, you know, uh, kind of switch it up so that way the reader, um, stays engaged and, and, uh, and, um, can, you know, we'll finish your article. Uh, and I, you know, like I mentioned before, being concise is also a really important, important part of that, because if you basically keep saying the same thing over and over again in three, three different ways, then they're, gonna, they're just going to tune out. So, um, you want to keep it moving. Uh, and part of that is, um, you know, having a good flow and, and rhythm and, um, yeah, and uh, I guess diversity in, in the way that you're conveying your message. Excellent, excellent. Uh, well, well, Laura, that's a unique perspective uh, on, on writing, especially coming at it from the journalistic uh, perspective. And while I wasn't a journalist per se, more of a, more of a blogger, although at, at that time the bloggers were all getting invited to press uh, to press things, especially when, when digital was getting really hot and conducting interviews, of course, is a, a certain form of journalism. <clears throat> uh, when, I, when I was first, uh, first writing, well, I, I went to a private university undergraduate and I graduated with close to $50,000 in debt. So moving forward, you know, how, what's your, what's your best advice? Talk to me about the, the game plan, uh, the millennial game plan, and uh, how, how did you pay down your debts? I'm curious, and, and what advice can you provide uh, that might be offered in your book? So, um, yeah, the, I actually meant to mention that earlier. The, the millennial game plan is yet another one of the things that I did with Forbes. Um, as well as a second ebook with them called Money Hacks, uh, which is about like kind of people who uh, are big. Um, I, I think we call them superstar savers, um, but they basically are just people who are really, really, really good with their money. <laughs> um, but anyway, so with a millennial game plan, my personal story is a part of the book. Um, and in terms of the way that I paid down my debt, um, as I mentioned, the, the, the budget was the first step. Um, you know, I had never really gotten a bead on how much I was making per month and how much my, um, basic expenses were every month. 
And, uh, you know, there are many different ways to create a budget, but the way that I was taught was, um, to think about your necessary expenses, like, uh, your housing, your transportation, your groceries, which is different from eating out. Uh, you know, most people can kind of project how much their groceries will cost them per month. Um, you know, and then any other kind of like things that you absolutely have to have every month. Um, and then, uh, your saving, which, you know, if you're building an emergency fund, uh, some of your savings might go to that. Um, if you are saving for retirement, uh, which everybody should be, um, <laughs> then some of your savings will go to that. And then, um, if you have other goals, like, you know, maybe you want to take a trip this year or you want to buy a house someday, or you're saving up for a car or whatever it might be. Um, then, you know, all those things are part of that second category as well. And then, um, the third is, uh, discretionary expenses, uh, which is, um, generally the, you know, the things that everybody thinks of when they think of their spending, um, you know, dining out falls in this category, shopping, entertainment, uh, basically things that are more of a choice, uh, when it comes to your lifestyle. Um, and, oh, and I actually forgot to mention with the savings, if you have debt, uh, you know, all, all your debt payments go in that category as well. So, so those are like financial priorities, like savings and, and debt. Um, so what I did was, um, I, because I had spent so much of my life simply just buying whatever I wanted to buy, I realized obviously in order to stay within my budget, I needed to essentially give myself an allowance every week. And the way that I did that was not to actually, um, stick to a, a strict allowance every week, but to instead keep a spreadsheet where I kept track of what my allowance was. But then if there was a week where I came in under, then the spreadsheet would, you know, add the, the surplus to the next week's allowance. Or if I, um, spent over my weekly allowance, then it would deduct from the next week's allowance. And I tracked all my expenses in a spreadsheet um, and, you know, for other people that are in debt, they may not need to go to these extremes, but because I am naturally so bad with money, um, this was something that I really needed to do. Um, even to this day, I actually still do this, um, because like I said, I just, I just know what my natural inclinations are. I can so easily spend money and totally not think about it or for, you know, I just forget that I've done that or whatever it might be. Um, so logging it down kind of keeps me in touch with like, you know, this is how much I'm spending and, 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 uh, you know, whether or not it's, you know, more, more than I really should be. Um, and the other thing that was really important to me paying off my debt was that I got a side gig while I was still at my last full-time job that was actually blogging. Um, it was for a CBS website where instead of doing reported stories where, you know, I'm, I'm coming up with a story myself and interviewing. I'm just watching the news on my beat, which at, for this site, I was doing science blogging. So I was just following the science news. And then I would essentially take other reporters reporting and, um, and just, you know, kind of write a quick blog take on it. So, um, that blogging gig was bringing in, I, I think, um, on average, it was maybe like 2,500 a month. 
So, um, you know, that's, that's a decent amount of money to put away uh, or, you know, in, initially I was using it to pay down my debt and then eventually later using it to save up. And so, um, you know, getting it, getting control of my finances and then making extra money, I would say those are the two main things that help me pay down my debt. And, and those are things I would recommend to, to anybody who's in this situation. No, that's, that's fantastic advice, Lori. I mean, you, you got to put in the work if you're going to pay down your debt. Uh, I was thinking about when I moved to New York City, and sure, I had this, this startup under 30 CEO that was uh, completely bootstrapped at the time. And, you know, for, for a couple 20, I guess we were 24 at the time when I moved to New York City, but for a couple 22, 23, 24-year-old kids to be making a few thousand dollars a month online, yeah, it was pretty cool, but we still, it still wasn't, uh, yeah, we were still eating peanut butter and jelly and, and ramen noodles, and I remember saying, all right, I want to be close to where the action is. I want to move to New York City, and uh, I had income from under 30 CEO for from a from a bootstrapping this this startup and but you had to pay I had to pay myself and you know have this college had had this college debt and all of that and I said well I'm just going to figure it out and I got there because my income was geez I think my income was as much as my rent was at the time like fifteen hundred dollars a month and I said I'm just going to go there and. and figure it out and I had to pick up consulting work and I, I eventually grew that into a nice little consulting business that helped pay down those debts and helped me not go into credit card debts, debt like the first few months that I was in New York. Uh, so I think, yeah, I, I can't speak highly enough about getting that extra gig uh, to help pay down those debts and, and then Laura, so you, you put together a very, let's call it a very adult budget. The, the budget that I was on when I was 24 was, was not so adult. That was, it, was a, uh, it was a tough decision to, to move to New York where, where my income was as much as my rent was. Uh, but can you tell us about these super savers, about these, these money hackers that are in your second book and, and what some of their hacks are? Oh my gosh, these people are, they're just incredible. Um, so I would say probably one of the most famous of these, um, his name is Mr. Money Mustache. I don't know. Do you know him? He's a pretty well-known blogger. No, no, I don't know him. Okay. So he, um, so I don't actually remember all the details of his story. I'm pretty sure he retired at the age of 30 or in his thirties. Wow. And, um, you know, granted he, he was a software developer. So right out of college, he was making good money, but a lot of people that make at that level spend at a similar level, or, you know, they even spend more. <laughs> um, I, you know, I write because I write a lot about personal finance. I do know that there are a lot of people who make a lot of money who still spend more than they earn. Um, but he was extremely frugal. Um, he's a big proponent of biking and not necessarily driving or even owning a car. Um, he's a big proponent of, you know, living, uh, with as small of a footprint as you can manage. Um, so for instance, um, you know, if you, uh, can swing it, you know, living in a small apartment, or, um, if you have a small family, just having a small house, 
um, because that cuts down on everything. It cuts down, you know, not just on your housing payments, but then also on your utilities. Um, uh, he also advocates, um, you know, doing free or cheap events, you know, instead of going out for dinner, have a potluck with friends, um, instead of going to a concert, that's a hundred bucks, go hiking, which is free. Um, you know, instead of buying books, go to the library. Um, so, you know, he, like he just, he just really lives a very simple life, but it's extremely intentional, um, the way that he's doing it. And then of course, uh, you know, with the extra money that you are, uh, not spending, you should invest it. And so, um, because he did all of these strategies right out of the gate, uh, you know, on a good salary, um, that's how he was able to amass enough savings by the time he was, I, I believe it was 30. Um, although I, you know, I don't remember exactly. Um, and, and I should also mention that, uh, I think his wife might've been in the same line of work. So I think they both, uh, you know, were, were earning a good salary and, and living this way. And so, um, you know, as I mentioned, because they had put away the money and then also invested it, that is what enabled them to get to this point where they were just like, oh, okay, now we have a big enough nest egg where if we manage it carefully and continue to spend under our means, we can essentially live off the earnings of this portfolio for the rest of our lives. And of course now, because his blog has become so popular, I'm sure he makes so much more from the blog than, than his investment portfolio. Um, and I'm sure it's also more than he needs because he lives such a frugal life. But, um, you know, that's one example. Um, some of the others, you know, one, one of the others, they, they were somewhat similar. Um, this is a couple, they blog at go curry cracker, which, uh, sounds, is, is spelled exactly as, as it sounds and is, um, just like a funny joke that they made while they were actually on their honeymoon, which, um, you know, true to their frugal roots was a, uh, was a camping trip in the Pacific Northwest. And, um, again, you know, uh, the, so the, the, even though it's a couple, the, the main driver of, of this lifestyle was, uh, the husband in, in the case, uh, Jeremy, who, um, he had actually started with, you know, kind of a more typical lifestyle where he had like an 1800 square foot townhome and like two cars and, uh, was commuting, you know, from a suburb. And then he just, he just realized this is not what I want. And so he, um, he, first of all, he actually moved to a, a different city, but then once he moved there, he lived close enough where he could commute by bike. Um, he had a much smaller house. He, you know, uh, just stopped spending in ways that weren't in line with his goals. And so then, um, eventually he also was able to retire in his thirties, um, you know, later than Mr. Money Mustache, but, um, but that's simply because he started later. He also was making a good salary, uh, and doing, uh, you know, technology type things. Uh, so oh, that's the other thing is that, um, in both of these examples, the, the people were making good money, uh, you know, probably better than the average person. But, um, I did also write about a pair of roommates who 
uh, embarked on what they called the buy nothing year. And, um, one of the, uh, roommates was somebody who really didn't make a lot of money. And, um, she still found that she, you know, was able to put a decent amount away. And theirs was this whole project where they started with, um, kind of a list of things that they, that they weren't allowed to buy, which, uh, it, and it was broken out into quarters. So they essentially were kind of like getting more extreme as the year went on. And it started with, you know, all the basics of like, um, clothing and like, you know, just electronics, like, you know, just things that are more like possessions. And then, you know, I kept getting, um, a bit stricter where it started to include, um, services like haircuts or, um, you know, things like dining out, um, including like a cup of coffee or, um, um, even transportation, which was really, really difficult because they lived in Calgary. So, (laughs) um, yeah. So, um, they, they gamed it a little bit. Like they would buy up before they entered that stage, they bought a whole bunch of bus tokens. Um, (laughs) uh, but yeah, but, uh, and one of them, oh yeah, this, I forgot about this. This was a big setback. One of them actually had a bike accident that knocked out some of his teeth. And then he actually then had to spend a lot of money, uh, to get his teeth fixed. So, so that was a little bit of a setback. Um, but by the end they were trying to do things like grow their own food. Um, so anyway, as you can see, there's so many ways that people can do this. Um, you know, and it goes to everything from, um, you know, uh, because actually, yeah, Um, uh, yeah, I did some other stories where people, and this was just a recent one that I did about a a woman who she started with, uh, $38,000 in student loan debt four years ago. And this past year she made a million dollars. And, um, the way that she did it was, she just was like, just, uh, really, really, really focused on paying down her debt super fast. And she paid off that $38,000 student loan debt within seven months. And the way she did it was picking up a ton of side gigs. And she estimates that she was working cause she had a full-time job. She estimates that she was working about a hundred hours a week at that time doing, you know, not only her full-time job, which, um, Oh, I, I'm, I'm just blanking for a second, but I think she said she was earning $50,000 from that job a year. So, um, you know, within seven months, she had only earned, she, the amount that she earned, um, at pre-tax from that job was less than what she paid down in debt. Um, (laughs) and so she was doing her job, but also doing mystery shopping and, um, doing like surveys online and, you know, just, I mean, so many random side gigs, just really anything she could find. Um, and then she eventually ended up launching her own blog and, uh, through, you know, affiliate links on the blog and also selling her a course on the blog, like things like that. Like she, uh, you know, earned about a million dollars this past year. So that's there's awesome. all kinds of strategies. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And there's, there's no substitute for a good, good old fashioned hard work. If you're trying to pay down that debt and, uh, and also for minimalism, which is a huge topic, uh, on our, on our podcast here. 
I mean, I, I didn't have a, a car for five years. I got rid of my, you know, luxury New York City apartment on the 39th floor and moved to Latin America and was paying, splitting a studio apartment uh, that was together was $300 a month. So, I mean, that was, wow. it was very, very bare bones and it was a, uh, it was not easy, but it was uh, just a tremendous experience just to live out of a backpack. Um, and God, it, it's arguable that I've lived out of a backpack for five years. Um, and, <laughs> but, but I mean, it's, yeah, what, a, what an amazing experience and also a great way to, to be able to get ahead on your finances. Um, okay, so Laura, yeah, as, and actually, yeah, go ahead. You, well, just, um, you should check out the Go Curry Cracker blog because they actually travel the world. They, um, last I wrote about them, they, you know, had lived like in different places in South America, Central America. They were living in Taiwan at the time. Um, they, but their goal really is, was to retire early and then just travel around so, um, so I, th I think you'd be interested in, in their story. I've, I've come across their blog a couple times. I'm glad that you brought them up and we'll link them up on the, the show notes uh, on under30experiences.com so that everybody listening can, can check it out. Uh, Laura, I wanted to ask you a, a couple um, more rapid fire questions as we, as we open or as we kind of wrap up, you don't have to give one word answers, but um, short, short and sweet, of course, I want to ask you, you know, you've written this millennial game plan, uh, but you have the podcast, uh, Unchained, it's called. I just wanted to get that right. I can't read my own handwriting on my, on my notebook. Unchained, is that <laughs> correct? Yes. Okay, just, just making sure. Um, could, could you give us your, your quick take on uh, should young people, if they do have some extra money and are looking for to put a small percentage of their savings into something that could potentially be a high yield investment, but also very high risk, uh, would you invest in, in something like Bitcoin? Oh. <laughs> um, so... Uh, first of all, I should say I am not an investment professional, uh, so this should not be construed as financial advice. Um, financial advice really should be gotten from someone who can look at your whole entire financial picture and make recommendations. Um, so when people ask me this question about whether or not they should invest in Bitcoin, um, I just always give uh, the general advice that you would give for any speculative investment. Um, Bitcoin is... Uh, Let's see. It is eight years old, and um, it's you know very new technology. However, um, despite the fact that just a few years ago it was worth pretty much nothing, it is now worth uh, today about probably nine hundred and twenty dollars, something around there. Um, and so um, the you know the. It, it, it is fairly volatile, though, as an investment. Um, the volatility has been decreasing, but it still is fairly volatile. And um, so because the future of Bitcoin is relatively uncertain, um, I would say if you're going to invest anything, just invest it as a speculative investment, meaning um, something like, you know, 1% of your portfolio or, you know, whatever it might be just like a, a you know, don't, don't put a, a, a significant amount 
in, in Bitcoin. And then the other thing I would say is it should be an amount that you're 100% completely willing to lose. So, um, so essentially, you know, if you have room for speculative investments in your portfolio, then, um, you know, that could be an option, but again, because it's speculative, it would be, it should be restricted to an amount that you're willing to lose. No, that's, that's fantastic advice. Just as if you were investing in a startup that, uh, yeah, you, sh you should be willing to lose that money or, or might as well count it out as lost. And if it comes, if it comes back big, well, that's great. Or if you get your money back, that's, that's great. Uh, if somebody wanted to go and invest in Bitcoin, where would you direct them? Are there any platforms that you would recommend? Yeah, um, the two main ones in the U.S. that are good for doing this, um, and, and both of them uh, do have presences in other countries, um, but you, if you're listening to this in another country, you should definitely check out both platforms because they're uh, not uh, available in every foreign country. Um, the two that uh, enable um, you to do what's called uh, to, store, to store your uh, Bitcoin in a vault uh, meaning, um, it gets a little complicated. Basically, um, with Bitcoin, you can keep it in a wallet where you can then transact with it, you know, to buy like a plane ticket or a computer or a coffee or whatever. Um, or you can store it as an investment, which means that it will be kept offline, not easily accessible. If you want to access it, I think both of these services, um, will uh, have like a 48-hour delay or 24-hour delay. It, de it depends. I, I don't know the particulars of the two sites. But um, but anyway, the two that do offer these uh, vaulting services that I would recommend are Coinbase, uh, spelled exactly as it sounds, coinbase.com. Um, it's uh, probably the, the most popular uh, place uh, to buy Bitcoin and, and actually a couple other cryptocurrencies in the U.S. And then another very well-known for its vaulting services are, it is Zappo, spelled X-A-P-O. That's xapo.com. And um, I, the, the Wall Street Journal wrote an article about them calling them the Fort Knox of Bitcoin. Um, and the reason is that they uh, employ bunkers in various places around the world, um, they split up the so-called keys to your Bitcoin, which is just like a string of, uh, somewhat random letters and numbers, um, into, you know, different places and, um, and they're physically secured and they're kept offline. And, um, so it, it just makes it really difficult for somebody to try to, to steal your Bitcoin and pretty much near impossible. Um, so those are the two that I'd recommend. Okay, that's that's great, Laura. Thank you for for those links. And again, yes, I'll I will link those up in the show notes. Moving on with our semi-rapid fire, I would call it. I would love to know, uh, and a lot I know a lot of people out there would love to know. How did you secure a sponsor for your podcast? Oh, <laughs> um, I knew that the audience that I had for my podcast was, um, something that would probably appeal to certain companies. Um, and so I reached out to a whole bunch of different people in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain communities 
to let them know that I was seeking a podcast sponsor, but not necessarily a company that works in the space because then it would just make it weird if I ever like wanted to interview them or uh, it, it just presented all these conflict of interest type of uh, difficulties. So, um, however, there are a number of companies that either, you know, allow you to purchase in Bitcoin or um, they, they would want to uh, send a message to, to that crowd. And so, um, you know, one, essentially one of these contacts said to me, hey, um, I know a company that it, they do marketing and they have been doing some marketing for some blockchain companies. And they're interested in finding if they can get more blockchain startups. Um, they might want to sponsor your podcast. And so I talked to the CEO and she, uh, you know, definitely did. Um, you know, like I said, it's a very targeted audience. And so I think that appealed to her. And so, you know, I named my price and uh, we did some paperwork and now I read uh, the sponsorship ad. Uh, there are two of them actually in, in the podcast. Excellent. Excellent. Moving on with, with rapid fire, what kind of yoga do you practice? Uh, vinyasa and restorative and, and Hatha uh, just, I, I used to do things like Ashtanga. I, I've done pretty much everything, but, but vinyasa I think is the main one. Awesome. That's, that's, we talk about yoga a lot on the, on the podcast also because our, our <laughs> focus is also health and, and fitness. And, uh, I wanted to ask. I used to teach by the way. Ah, okay. Okay. Where, yeah. where did you teach? <laughs> Um, in New York and in LA, I, I lived in LA for a brief, brief period. Nice. But, what? what um, uh, where in Where in New York? I'm curious. Um. Well, I think the the only studio maybe that would be well known enough to name, uh, and is a place where I did my teacher training, uh, but was mainly a sub was Ohm Yoga, started by Cindy Lee. Oh, okay. I've, I've never yeah. been, but I'll, I'll have to oh, check okay. it out. Um, it closed. No, but it closed a few years ago. Uh, I think she just teaches around the world now. Gotcha. So, gotcha. Speaking yeah. of, of teaching and traveling the world, where is, uh, where do you think is the most inspirational place to go and write? Oh, gosh. That's a really interesting question. Um... Well, uh, so I'm not sure what's the most inspirational place to go and write, but I would say that my favorite places I've ever traveled probably are Italy and Indonesia. Um, and I lived in Indonesia for a year teaching English and the Indonesian people are very lovely and super funny and it's a an incredibly diverse and beautiful place. Uh, and when I say diverse, I mean in terms of the people, the language, the food, but also the flora and the fauna. And uh, yeah. Um, and then the other is Italy because I've been there something like 12 times. Um, wow. And that's also an incredibly diverse country. Um, you know, it's, it's mostly like coastline and mountains uh, and also islands. So I just, I love mountains and I also love beaches, uh, and there are rocky beaches and sandy beaches. And, um, yeah, I just, and again, it's a place where the people are friendly, but also there's tons of history. Um, so it just kind of gets you in a little bit of a philosophical mood. 
Um, and yet there's a lot of going on in a contemporary way. So, you know, there's like good shopping, good restaurants, um, great museums. So it's, it, it offers a diversity of, of things to enjoy. I, I think that's an amazing answer. I've only been to Italy once, but the uh, sitting in front of the Trevi Fountain was just breathtaking, and I would call that uh, an inspirational place. And I've been to Indonesia five or six times, I, I would say, maybe five times. Um, what island? On what island did you live uh, in Indonesia? Um, I was on Java in Bandung, which is um, three hours southeast of Jakarta. Wow. And I actually highly recommend it if you haven't been there because the weather there is so much better than in, <laughs> in other parts of Indonesia because it's it's uh, ringed by all these volcanoes, so it's just, uh, it doesn't get as hot and, and, uh, and humid. Wow, excellent. Could, could you spell the name of the little... Uh... Oh. Bandung, B-A-N-D-U-N-G. Okay, great. We will link that up as well for everybody. Um, Laura, this, is, this has been fantastic. If you wanted to just give people out there one last piece of overarching advice, we always try to leave people with something actionable at the end of the podcast, uh, you know, through all of your experiences, whether it, it doesn't have to particularly be about writing or managing their podcasts or, or a travel tip per se, but just in general, if you were going to give people a little bit of advice to just uh, be able to, to step up their game in whatever aspect uh, they are looking to do so, what would you tell them? Um, I would say don't underestimate the power of your mind. And when I say that, uh, I'm, a, I'm thinking of you know, things like attitude is everything. Um, I'm thinking of visualization. Like if you have a goal in mind and you want to get to a certain place in your life, you can make it happen if you can dream it. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, just, I, I met up with a really good college friend the other day who, um, we all celebrated our 40th birthdays together. And at that time she was a, a full-time physician and she was kind of unhappy with her work. And she, she was, she's a huge math person, like really good with numbers. And she kind of studied something uh, similar to economics in college. Um, but then later became a doctor and, um, you know, my friend and I are, there's like three of us that are super tight. And so one friend and I, we kept telling her like, maybe you should do something more like in the data science field around health, you know, data science is really taking off. And then I said to her, you know, I bet a year from now you could be in a job that you really love. And she was like, no, like how, you know, I'm sure it would take much longer. Da, 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 da. And no, she made it happen in a year. She's in this new job that she absolutely loves. She's been there now for, um, between six and nine months. And she did make it happen within, uh, nine months of us having that conversation and um, she was just amazed. She said to me and this other friend, because uh, all three of us did get together again uh, the other night, and she's like, "I didn't believe you." And I said, "Yeah, you, you know, if because if I look back at like changes I've made, I've been able to do it, you know, in a year." And I just uh, really would counsel people to um, to have faith in their own abilities, and uh, you know, to think positively and to move in the direction that they want to go. I love it, Laura. That is uh, sage advice. 
Never underestimate the power of the mind. You are, you are Laura Shin, S-H-I-N, on your verified Twitter account. You have ideaswordsempires.com, all about freelance writing. Your podcast is called Unchained, and you have excellent contributions on Forbes.com. Laura, anywhere else where we can send people to say hello to you? <laughs> um, those are good. Uh, the only other thing I would mention is if they are interested in the ebook, it's called The Millennial Game Plan. And in it, I give uh, not only financial advice, but also career advice. Excellent. Sounds good, Laura. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really nice chatting with you. Yo, Live Different Podcast listeners, you know what to do. You love the episode if you listened this far. Go to iTunes. Show us some love. Please, that's all we ask. A little five-star review. Just a little review. That's all we need. Send it to a friend who needs to get their ass in gear. We're trying to do good work here, and we need your help. Hey, you know what? Special offer. Send me an email personally. I will write back. Matt at under30experiences.com. I want to know your feedback, and then... I want to meet you in person. Maybe our yoga retreat, maybe our fitness retreat. Who knows? Check out under30experiences.com. Go do something awesome with your life.